It's good to be back. And so if we want to practice living Easter in this Easter season, we have to begin this way, right? He is risen. Ah, uh, we, we need to practice. He is risen. He is risen. He is Absolutely. And one of the great things about Easter, isn't it, is there's this focal moment when the entire church, not just here, but around the world, gathers together and makes that proclamation. He is risen indeed, right? And all of a sudden, if you're with us during Easter Sunday, the resurrection seems so palpable and true, right? You're gathered with people who are affirming that Jesus died and he rose again. He was in darkness, but he's returned in light. He's inviting us as a community to move from life, right? From death into life. The resurrection is good news for us. And I don't know how many of us, as you're saying, he is risen indeed, are actually saying like, he is risen indeed, I think. I hope because um, even on Easter Sunday, some of us struggled to say it, and by Easter Monday, it was seeming pretty distant, and by Easter Tuesday, we barely remembered we had an Easter Sunday, and by Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, and God only knows what happens by day 45 of Eastertide. What does it mean for us to be resurrection people who are living um, and celebrating the resurrection every day? I think one of the things that makes it harder is that we don't want to grapple with the reality of doubt. And so I want us to look, as we begin celebrating Easter, what does it mean to doubt and doubt faithfully and to doubt truthfully and to doubt well? Because I think for some of us, it's easy to celebrate Easter. We live in Easter all the time, and others of us don't. And um, Helmut Thielica is a theologian, but he once said that there's a difference between wintry Christians and summery Christians. So he said, summary Christians are the people who, like, um, when they're having times of prayer and retreat, they're just filled with joy, and God is speaking to them all the time. They walk away enraptured. It's like what Pete talked about, right, um, last week, when he's like, I was with Jesus for two days, and it transformed my life. I was so filled with him. And then there are others of us who go away on a retreat, and we sit down and try to be silent before God, and it's just like, like white noise. There are others of us who, when we're worshiping here in this congregation, we're filled with excitement. We are belting the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And we can feel the Holy Spirit moving through us, and all of a sudden, Jesus seems really intimate. And wintry Christians tend to feel like, wow, this is a lot like karaoke. But I didn't even get a drink before we started. There are people who um, hear God and hear his voice in prayer or scripture or experience him in dreams and those who feel his silence very acutely, the wintry Christians. Um, summary Christians seem to always have remarkable miracle stories of how God's intervening in their life and doing things. And for those who are more wintry, um, we still struggle because the illness is still there and the infertility hasn't changed and the unemployment and underemployment seem to continue and we still seem to be single or married or divorced or have a child who's wandering far. Now, I'm not totally a wintry Christian. I'm more of a late fall, early spring 
Um, but I think the challenge for all of us is, right, how do you live in the week after Easter? Especially if Jesus doesn't appear to you and intervene like he did for those early disciples, right? Because that first resurrection day, Jesus is just bopping around. He's appearing to Mary and in the garden. He's appearing to the disciples who are walking to Emmaus. He's appearing in this locked room, and none of us got to experience that. And similarly, Thomas, one of the 12, didn't experience that either. And I want to look at Thomas's life as a way of looking at what does it mean to live the week after Easter, so in John 20, beginning in verses 24 and 25, the scriptures say this, Now Thomas, known as Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. We don't know where he was, but he was not in that upper room. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord! We saw him! He like showed up right here! We saw the Lord! And Thomas looks at them and he says, Unless I see the nail prints, the nail marks, in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Right? What he's basically saying is, look, I was there when he was on the cross. You were too, right? Like, we saw him there. I was there when I saw that centurion stick a spear into his side. I knew he was dead. I was there when we rolled his body in those cloths and buried him. What do you mean that you saw him, that he was alive? He's dead. Dead people don't walk. Unless I see, you telling, unless I see a body that has nail prints in his arms, that has a hole in his side, you guys are either having this mass delusion or some guy is coming and you're faking this, but unless I see his body maimed by the cross, I will not believe. I appreciate Thomas because he's not had that same experience everybody else seems to be having, filled with joy and hope renewal. And he's honest about his question. And he's honest and he has integrity about what's facing him, right? That's what I love about Thomas as I look at him and as I wrestle with being a kind of wintry-ish Christian myself. Gee, Thomas gives us this great model of how to doubt and how to doubt faithfully and to doubt well because I think for a lot of us in the church we can come and it's so easy to assume everybody is having this fantastic spiritual experience every day. They're like their, you know, time... Um, and daily prayer is just rich. They're meeting with Jesus every time they are in silence. Miracles are intervening. God is speaking, and we feel like we're the only ones for whom that doesn't happen. And Thomas gives us a model of how to engage with that. First, I, what I love about Thomas is that he has a great deal of integrity, right? He says to them, look, unless I see the nail mark in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, like, right? like I want to feel it. Unless I see this hole in his side, I am not going to believe. What I love about Thomas is that he has integrity about his doubts because he knows the important question. He knows exactly what God has to do for his mind and his heart to be changed. And I think for a lot of us who wrestle with doubt or who are doubting by personality, the challenge is we can get so distracted with all of the questions that we have that we don't actually ask the question, what's the one thing I need to see God do? or to say to me, or to make himself new. And if he did that, man, I would just give myself to him. But too often we get distracted by all these other questions, and we don't have integrity in our doubting. Um, I work with University Christian Fellowship, a ministry to college and university campuses, as Rich said. And 
I remember a colleague of mine, Jeanette, was meeting with a student. He was a non-Christian who had come into one of our Bible studies, was reading scripture with us, but he was filled with questions, right? Filled with doubt. And so being a good professional Christian, Jeanette said, hey, how about we meet once a week? You send me your question. I'll prepare and try to figure out how to answer them. We'll meet and we'll talk through it, okay? And so the guy was like, sure, let's do that. So every week, Jeanette would show up and he'd have a different question, right? It would start with like, how do you even know the Bible's true? Like, how do you know? So they'd spend a week and talk about it. The next week, he'd call him like, okay, here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Like, miracles, really? Like, the Bible talks about miracles. Are you serious? And then, you know, it got to the resurrection. It talked about Christian lifestyle and ethics. And it just went on and on and on. So about seven weeks into this process, Jeanette turned to him and said, look, dude, stop wasting my time. He was a little dumbfounded because that's not what you expect pastor types to say to you. And she said, no, like, really, ask me a question that matters. I come here every week. I spend hours preparing, and I answer the questions that you have. You agree that this is a good answer, and you still don't believe. So either ask me a question that really matters to you and that would change your mind, or stop wasting my time. And frankly, stop wasting your time. You have better things to do than this. Right? I think if you're going to doubt, then doubt faithfully and doubt with integrity. At least be clear about what's the thing that you need God to do, say, or be in order for you to change. Otherwise, you're allowing doubt to define your identity, and you aren't looking for the right answers because you don't have the integrity to ask the right question. And when that happens, really, you're unable to hear an answer, right? Let's have integrity as we ask our questions and as we wrestle in doubt. What I love about Thomas and his stories, not only is Thomas super clear about the question that he's wrestling with, right, so that he's, he knows what he's looking for, he's committed to community. Because you notice a week later, a week after the Easter resurrection, this Sunday, right, a week after Easter, um, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. If you're going to doubt, then let me suggest doubt like Thomas and doubt in the Christian community, not apart from it. Because I know so many people who begin to doubt, and they begin to go, well, you know, I, I don't know if I believe what you all believe, so I'm just going to go over here and figure out the answer, and if I do believe, I'm going to come back to you, and it never works that way. Because you see, truth is best understood, captured, and then integrated in the context of community. Because I think really truth really is discovered in community. That's why scientists work as groups to look for discoveries. It's understood best when you're in community and applied in community. That's what um, Alcoholics Anonymous has figured out, right? They know there's no such thing as a somebody in recovery who does it alone. They need a community to support them, right? That's why we meet, as Pete was saying earlier, in small groups. Why? Because we know that it's easy to have this kind of conversation where you passively listen, but if you want to integrate truth in your life, if you want to be changed by it, then you have to be in conversation and face other people and talk to them. I love the fact that when Thomas was doubting, he didn't give up on church or fellowship or Bible study, but a week later, he's still in that community, right? Because what happens is we need each other in order to pursue this kind of truth. Um, I was speaking at Cornell University a couple months ago, and one of the students in the Q&A section said, hey, have you ever had periods of doubt in your life, like months or so, that like, you just weren't sure you believed? 
and the room kind of went silent, and I, I laughed, and I'm like, um, no, I, I've never had just months. I've had, like, years where it's been hard to believe. And, right, I'm employed as a Christian professional, but there have been years in my life where I'm like, it's just hard sometimes to believe these scriptures are true, that I, I didn't feel like I could sing these worship songs with any sense of confidence or joy. Prayer was just... You know, thank God somebody wrote down a prayer I could pray because it wasn't coming spontaneously to my heart or lips. I wasn't sure I wanted to spend tons of time with God. And he goes, so what did you do? Um, and thankfully, he goes, you know, because that's your job. Um, but I said, you know, the, the, the most important thing I did is I just kept showing up. I kept showing up at church and in small group because I realized if I went out alone, I'd freeze to death in my own doubt. But it was in community where when I couldn't pray, I knew that my brothers and sisters were praying and they were holding me up before the Lord that when we had to say the Lord's Prayer together, even if I didn't feel it, I knew for 2,000 years the believers of the body of Christ had been praying that prayer. And they were praying it for me when I didn't have the energy or hope to pray it for myself. Right? When I couldn't sing the songs with any enthusiasm, it was so critical to be in this congregation and see people's eyes transformed as they were singing because I thought there's still hope and joy somewhere here and I'm going to stick around until I can find it. I love when somebody is preaching, there are a couple people I always look at the congregation, it tends to be the older saints among us and there's some people here who are in significantly older than me and I know when they open the scriptures, the light turns on in their eyes and there's expectation on their face and sometimes all I do is I focus on that because I'm like, I want to go out like that. Right? It's why during Easter Sunday, I was so grateful we got to have a baptism and a baptism story because there's something for me about hearing somebody saying, I have become a follower of Jesus, and I want to declare that publicly that reminds me when I'm not sure I'm holding on that it's worth it and lives are being changed. Something about community is critical if we're going to doubt. And what I love is the community didn't reject him when he was doing it. Right, because you can imagine the disciples are scared, they're isolated, they're alone, and one of the core people in the group is like, I'm not sure I really believe this anymore. It would have been so easy for the other apostles to turn on him. Fine, get out then. Judas too, get out. If you don't believe this happened, then get out. Pull your act together, and when you're ready, you can come back in. But what they do is they're like, where else are you going to go? Of course you should be here. If you're going to doubt, have integrity with the question, stay in community. And what I love about Thomas as well is that it's not just that he sought community, but I think he seeks community because he knows he has to obey what he already has heard. Right? Jesus is super clear, and the New Testament continues to confirm, as the Old Testament has, you have to be in worship together. And so he's uncertain about who God is, uncertain about who Jesus is, but what he knows is that he's been commanded to be in community, and so he still shows up. Right? That's what faith really looks like in the midst of doubt for Thomas. He's putting into practice what he already knows, which is the precondition for revelation. Obedience is always the precondition for revelation. You will never discover or learn more until you put into practice what you already have. Because if you don't, you're hardening your heart just like the Pharaoh did, right? You're actually actively closing your eyes to the truth and you're wondering why the light doesn't shine in. You can't put a bag over your head and hope the wind of the Spirit will hit your face and refresh you. 
And um, for Thomas, he still shows up and he's faithful to what he already knows. This is the community that Jesus called together, so I'm going to be there. And I think this is critical because um, I've seen it happen time and time again. Um, as a campus minister, I could always tell which students were going to walk away from their faith within the first three or four weeks of the school year. It was like they had a sign over their head, but the sign over their head was this. We'd meet them at the beginning of the school year. We'd call, hey, welcome to campus. We'd love to bring you to our Christian fellowship and connect you with the local church. How could we help you? And the person's like, that's great. I have the time and date. I'll be there. And week one, they just wouldn't show up. So you call them again. Hey, hey, we noticed you that you weren't there. Um, could we meet you at your dorm and walk you over so you don't have to walk over by yourself? As we know, that's intimidating. Um, we have a car that would be happy to pick you up for Sunday. Sure, I'll meet you in the lobby. And they just wouldn't show up. Then so week three, you're getting a little desperate, so you call them, hey, we have, we've missed you these last two weeks. Can I take you out for coffee? I'd love to hear your experience. What's going on? How could we better support you? Yeah, yeah, great, I'll meet at the coffee shop. And then they just wouldn't show up. And I think they just did not stop showing up in our fellowship. They stopped showing up for God. Eventually, they just stopped identifying as a Christian. I saw this with obedience in the same way. InterVarsity sponsors the Urbana Student Missions Conference. We just finished one in December. It's about 20,000 students uh, gathered to hear where, what God is doing in the world and their place in it. And so when I was on campus staff, I used to meet with every student who would go from my campus in order to follow up with them. So that one year, I had about 25 students going. I took an hour, you know, made hour-long appointments with them, filled my week, right? Like beginning at 9 a.m., 9, 10, 11, 12, I just, bam, 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 I'm going to go through all of them. What did God do? Um, so I remember meeting with a student named Jessica. And um, I said, Jessica, what was your experience at Urbana like? She's like, oh, it was awesome. We had like 20,000 people worshiping. I've learned things about what God is doing in the world that I've never heard before. I heard God speak. It was a, a profound experience. Excellent. My next question was always, what was God's invitation to you in response to the conference? What's your point of application? And she was like, oh, it's so easy. I, it's so clear. I'm convinced God is calling me to read through the whole Bible in a single year. Excellent. I love application like that, right? It's super concrete. It's easy to do, easy to pride of accountability. It's nothing like, I need to discern my vocation and where God's coming, right? It's nothing hard. It's super easy. There's not even a relationship they have to fix. So I'm like, what do you need, Jessica? Do you need like a Bible reading plan? Do you need a one-year Bible? I would buy a one-year Bible for you if it would help you follow what God is saying. And she's like, oh, don't worry. I'm not going to do it. What? And she said, oh, I'm too lazy. Greg, I, I mean, I wake up at like 10.30, 11-ish in the morning. I go to class. I go to my after-school job. Um, and then I hang out with my friends. And I really don't start my homework till like 10 at night. And then I, you know, I do my homework till about 2.30 or 3. And then I go to sleep. So then I wake up again at 10. And I'm just really tired all the time. And, you know, frankly, I'm just too lazy to do it. So... I said to her, you're clear you heard from God. Oh, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and that he was specifically was saying, you should just read through the Bible in the year. Oh, yeah, that was really clear. <laughs> but you're not going to do it. Oh, no, no, I'm too lazy. 
I just stared at her. It, it was one of the few times in my life I've been completely speechless. Right? My wife wishes for more experiences like that. I was so dumbfounded. I, I was just like, okay, well, hey, thanks for coming to coffee with me. And she got up and walked out of the coffee shop and like three months later walked out of the fellowship and six months later walked out of the faith entirely. Because if you don't do what you already know you're commanded to do, you'll never see anymore. You begin to close your eyes. You close yourself off for God. And it's no wonder that we doubt. It reminds me, Thomas's experience, though, is he's clear about his questions. He stays in community. He obeys Jesus to the extent that he can understand him. And it reminds me of this quote um, written by C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, in which a senior devil is tempting a younger devil on how, teaching a younger devil how to tempt people. And so he talks about the enemy up there who keeps trying to grab these people down here. And in one of um, the quotes, uh, Screwtape says, don't be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer in desire, sorry, no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. The enemy's schemes are never more in danger than when you have that kind of faithfulness, and I think that's what Thomas demonstrates. What I'm so what moves me most about this passage, though, isn't the quality of Thomas's doubt. It's the extent of Jesus's love. Because what happens next, right? A week later, when the disciples are gathered in this room, the text goes on to say, even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. This is one of the stories that makes me love Jesus and keeps me following him decades after I first gave my life to him. Right? Jesus wants Thomas to believe so badly and so desperately that he appears in a locked room. Right? He's like, I'm not going to let a wall stop me. I'm not going to let your door stop me. I'm not going to let your puny little locks prevent me from coming to you, Thomas. No matter how locked away you think you are, I am going to violate the laws of nature itself and make myself known to you. Right? I love that Jesus is pursuing Thomas, not in easy ways, but he's doing relentlessly, making sure, Thomas, you're doubting and you're showing integrity and you're pursuing me, then you will find me because I'm going to hunt you down. Right? This is the Jesus I love who never will allow anything, not our internal walls or the external walls of a room, prevent us from finding him because he's coming to seek us. I love this Jesus, right? Because he's literally violating the laws of nature to do that. And what I love as well about Jesus is not just that he shows up, because he could have shown up like this, right? Lightning, thunder, wind, smoke. And then he just blows Thomas out. So you're going to doubt, are you? Right? I mean, he could have just totally blasted him away. But Jesus just appears in the room and he says, so Thomas, you said you wanted to see my hands. 
here, here's my hand. You want to put your hand here in the hole in my side? Do it, right? Jesus so graciously meets Thomas specifically at the place where Thomas said, I need to see you here, Jesus. Using the very words that Thomas said, right? Unless I see this and put my fingers here, Jesus says, I heard you. You didn't see me, but I was there and I heard you. So do it, Thomas. Here's my body. Touch it. What else do you need? I love the fact that Jesus answers Thomas at the very point of Thomas's question. And then Jesus goes on to say, right? Sorry. Stop doubting and believe, Thomas. And essentially, he's challenging Thomas to choose a path. He's basically saying, stop being a doubter and continue on being a believer, right? Because there's a path and a posture that Jesus is inviting us to. And he's basically saying, look, don't define your identity around doubt because doubt is way too thin a blanket to keep you warm in your life. Stop positioning yourself and posturing yourself as a doubter because if you do that, you will be led astray and far from me. But reposition yourself, believe, right? Become a believer, not a doubter today, Thomas. And I think it's critical because unless you do that, you'll be led astray because, you know, um, Everything in our culture suggests that doubt, cynicism, and skepticism are more sophisticated, more intelligent, and a lot safer than a simple word like faith or belief, right? The goal in all the conversations, what's the narrative behind the narrative? Who's trying to manipulate me? Who's misusing power behind me in an effort to appropriate? All of it is done with this hermeneutic of suspicion. We assume people are out to guess. We're going to see through that. And what Jesus says is that kind of posture of skepticism and cynicism is not the posture that you need or can have as you pursue me. Flannery O'Connor is um, an American novelist, and she once said, what people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is just a big electric blanket, when of course it's the cross. It's much harder to believe than not to believe. If you feel you can't believe, you must at least do... Um, do this. Keep an open mind. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it. And then leaving the rest for God. Because unless you do that, you will be unable to actually encounter God in the experience of doubt. Um, Anne Lamott's an American novelist and, or, and writer. She tells this story about a man sitting in a bar talking to the bartender. Right? And he's, he's complaining and kind of crying to the bartender, I've completely lost my faith. Um, and the bartender's like, why? And the guy says, I was um, piloting a plane in Alaska, and it, was, like, it crashed in the frozen tundra. And I, as I lay there in the wreckage hour after hour, nearly frozen to death, I was crying out for God to save me, but he didn't raise a finger to help me. And the bartender said, but you're here. You're alive. You were saved. Right, said the man. Because finally some darn Eskimo came along and got me. If you're postured toward doubt, you will only see the Eskimo. If you're postured toward faith, you'll have a chance to see the Eskimo and the God who directs the path of an Eskimo. 
but your choice of posture will determine which one you see. What's critical for Thomas after Jesus appears is Thomas's response, right? Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, right? Thomas responds with allegiance and worship. He says, I, you've answered all of my questions, the most important question. You've appeared to me. You've invited me to follow you. You've pursued me relentlessly. So you are everything. You are my Lord, and you have the right to command me, and you are the God who I will worship, right? He responds wholeheartedly with his whole person. He um, moves from doubt to faith, and that same sense of confidence and following Jesus will move him from faith um, in Jerusalem over into um, Iran and Iraq, where he was the early apostle to the Parthians, all the way out, according to church tradition, into India, where he planted the early Indian church that we still um, engage with, uh, the Marthoma church, which claims its descent from the preaching of Thomas back in that first century, right? The path from doubt to faith leads him to follow Jesus wherever Jesus will lead him. And in calling Jesus my Lord and my God, Thomas actually gives the clearest identification of who Jesus is in the whole of the Gospel of John. Right? This is the culminating story as Jesus is like, you know, I'm the vine, I'm the branches, I'm the gate, I'm the shepherd. And then finally somebody goes, you are my Lord and my God. And this is the capstone, the best definition of who Jesus is in the whole of this Gospel. But it's a revolutionary term because um, the person who was normally called Lord and God in the Roman Empire was Caesar. When he'd walk in a room, rather than hail to the chief, you'd hear the song that was essentially, hail to our Lord and God. And by claiming that Jesus is Lord and God, rather than Caesar, Thomas is making this radical claim, right? He's basically saying, Jesus may have been crucified by cowardly and corrupt political powers, but they could not keep Jesus down because he is the Lord, right? He may have been condemned by jealous and deceitful religious leaders, but they could not keep Jesus down. He rose again because he is the Lord. He may have been rejected by the people who wanted Barabbas, but they could not keep Jesus down. He rose again because he is the Lord. He may have been abandoned by his followers who fled in fear, but they could not keep Jesus down because he rose again. He is the Lord and the world changes when Thomas sees that, and we're invited to make that same response when you see Jesus. Now, some of us are thinking, sure, if I could actually see Jesus manifest here on stage at New Life and go, okay, here, everybody, just come on, touch it, let's get this over with, maybe I'd believe like that too. What I love in this passage is that Jesus goes further and actually blesses those of us who believe without seeing Jesus in the flesh, Right? Because Jesus says, blessed are you because you've seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Right? Jesus isn't commending blind faith, but I think he's looking at Thomas and goes, um, because you've seen me, you've believed, but you know what? And then he looks beyond Thomas to generations of people gathered from all across the globe. He says, blessed are all of you who haven't seen me in the flesh but still believe, right? Because we haven't seen him in the flesh, but we've seen him as we've studied the scriptures, Old and New Testament. We've experienced him physically surrounding us in this community of faith. 
we've heard the witness of others testifying to who Jesus is, and we've given ourselves. And Jesus looks at us, I think, through history and goes, blessed are you who are willing to believe, even though you don't see me like this. Right? Because in the end, that's our answer to all folk, including those of us here today who ask, but Jesus hasn't appeared in the flesh for me. He hasn't answered my distinct prayer. He hasn't done the thing that I want him to do. How do I keep believing? If Jesus doesn't appear in the flesh in my broken marriage, in this terrible spot I find myself in, in the doubts I find myself in, how can I believe? And what our answer is, the way Jesus ultimately appears to us today is the church because this is his body. Right? I love how Jesus models for us how the church needs to engage. Because Jesus meets Thomas in his place of need, and the church needs to do the same for everybody who doubts today. Right? Um, Herb Chulstrom was the leader of one of the Lutheran churches in the United States uh, as it was wrestling with what Scripture teaches about sexual ethics. And he said, as we wrestle with these questions, I want to share this letter that I got recently from a 70-year-old woman who identifies as a lesbian, but because of her convictions about what Scripture teaches, has pursued celibacy and chastity her life, through her life. We need to understand her story so that we properly respond. And he said, this is what she wrote me. All my adult life, I have longed for someone special whose hand I could hold and someone I could embrace. When I've encountered the cruelty of anti-gay expectations, I've wished for a loving shoulder on which I could lean and cry my heart out. But often, the church doesn't allow for that. I've sometimes thought that when I get to heaven, I would like to be held in the Lord's, Lord's arms for a long time to make up for what I have been denied. A lifetime is a long time to wait for something we crave as much as love. This woman needed to meet Jesus. She needed to meet Jesus in the loving embrace of his body. And he wasn't probably going to physically manifest in the world to do that. But we are his hands and arms. The church should have been able to come around her and say, you're lonely, welcome into my family and into my home. Do you need someone's shoulder to cry and then my shoulders are the shoulders of Jesus for you? Weep with me and I will weep with you and care for you. Are you struggling and feeling like there's no end to this difficulty that you're in? I will walk hand in hand with you, holding and encouraging you to be faithful to Scripture, but you will not do this alone because I'm going to do it with you. We will be there together, right? That's what the church needs to be and to do so that people can encounter Jesus in the flesh. We are the body of Christ. That's why we have to engage in racial reconciliation because people need to see Jesus in a racist, racist and racialized society. Will we show them Jesus? That's why Sabbath matters to us as a congregation. Because people need to see Jesus in a workaholic, performance-driven, crazy society around us. Will we show them Jesus by the way that we act, right? That's why justice matters, because people need to see Jesus in an unjust society. Will we show them Jesus? That's why gender equality matters, because people need to see Jesus in a misogynistic, patriarchal culture. Will we show them Jesus? That's why forgiveness matters, 
right? Because people need to see Jesus even when we're persecuted or shot in our own churches. Will we show them Jesus? Because the testimony of the church for 2,000 years is when people encounter Jesus enfleshed in his people, they respond as cynical as they may be with, there was something different there. And hopefully some respond with, my Lord and my God. I pray we'd become a church, that we'd continue to be a church, where people see the resurrected Jesus as they encounter us. I pray that we'd become a place filled with Thomases, right? That we'd be honest in our questions, that we'd be bold, persistent, and faithful in pursuing our answers in community. But just as much, I pray that our church would be the kind of place where we demonstrate that Christ is alive as we sacrificially serve the world, as we ask our questions, as we wrestle with um, the deepest and hardest parts of the world that literally people find the shoulder of Christ in our churches. They weep, the arms of Christ to lift them up when they fall, the body of Christ to embrace them when they're alone. And I pray as they do that, that we and the world around us would respond like Thomas, my Lord and my God. The reminder that, ground, that grounds us in this kind of commitment is actually the practice of taking communion together. Because it's at communion that we gather together in all of our differences and all of our diversity and say, we are one body of Christ together, coming before the Lord. And then we take the body of Christ and remember how it was broken and the cup of his blood being spilled and in the promise and the hope of the resurrection and the new covenant that's being established we feast on the body of Christ to nourish us, right? So when the body of Christ gathers around the body of Christ, we see Jesus in the community gathered here and in the remembrance of his death and resurrection. And I hope our experience at that moment will be my Lord and my God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask, help us see Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. I want to invite the folks that are going to be offering communion <clears throat> to come to the tables. When we take communion together, we behold this, this sacred mystery that Jesus Christ makes himself available to us. And Christ makes himself available to, to us in a, a myriad of ways. But he comes to us uh, quite tangibly through bread and through the cup. And so as we take communion together, it's a reminder that Jesus is saying, I'm alive. I'm available. I'm making myself known to you. And so hear these words out of scripture. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take eat this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink of it all of you this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
When we come to the table, we come not in our name, but in Jesus' name. We come not in our performance. Some of you, you probably had maybe a bad spiritual performance this past week. Maybe didn't pray much. Maybe fell into some temptation. If coming in our performance was the way to come to the table, none of us have a chance. But we don't come in our performance. We come in the performance of Jesus. We don't come in our righteousness. We come in his righteousness. We don't come in our works. We come in his works. And so the table is here. And Jesus Christ says, come with all of your doubts, with all of who you are, come to the table, eat and drink of me. And so I want to invite you to come forward. You're going to hear these words. So this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And as you take the bread and the cup, go back to your seat and I'll come back and I'll lead us together. Father, thank you for the gift of scripture. Thank you for Greg and for all the truth that we heard today that we can bring our doubts to you and you still receive us. You make yourself known to us. And so, Lord, we come to this table of grace and we come in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we take, uh, take in the bread and the cup, the body and blood of Jesus, maybe um, you've had a hard time trusting God this past week. And so I want to offer, I want us to offer in the silence of our own heart, our own confession before God, our own repentance before God. Maybe you believe in the resurrection, but you're having a hard time that God's going to intervene in this area of your life. Maybe in your finances, in a relationship, it's something in your job. You say, Rich, I believe in the resurrection, but I'm not sure if he can help me out here. And so I'm filled with doubt in this area of my life. And we all have our doubts. And Jesus invites us to offer it to him. So I invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And for just a couple of moments, just offer what is that area in your life that you're having a hard time trusting Jesus? And just say, Lord, I confess this is where I'm having a hard time. And then we'll pray a prayer of confession on the screen together. Let's pray this prayer of confession on the screen. God of all mercy, we confess that we have sinned against you, opposing your will in our lives. We have denied your goodness in each other, in ourselves, and in the world you have created. We repent of the evil that enslaves us, the evil we have done, and the evil done on our behalf. Forgive, restore, and strengthen us through our Savior Jesus Christ, that we may abide in your love and serve only your will. Amen. Let's all take together. I want to invite the prayer team to come to my left. 
What I loved about Greg's sermon is what he explored about Thomas is that Thomas, even with all his doubting, he connected himself to community. And God encountered him in that context. And God encounters us in that context as well. That's why we close every gathering with a time of prayer. Because God visits us in unique ways when we offer words of prayer over each other. There's something that God does that I can't wrap my mind around, something mysteriously that God does. And so whatever doubt you're carrying, whatever issue that you're holding, uh, we close with a time of prayer for those that would like to receive it. As a reminder, we have our newcomer lunch. It's right through those doors there. So if you're coming, you can just go right up through those doors at the end of our service here. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you uh, up there. But as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If you're new here, we close every gathering like this because this is a posture of receiving. And you cannot give what you have not received. And so Jesus wants you to receive out of which we give to the world. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is risen. And may you be an extension of his grace to those you encounter this week, may people come to know of the risen Savior through your life. And so I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen. Go in peace, everyone.